Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 27 and 28. And the last time we covered the Millennial Kingdom, if we could put up the timeline, this is just a a timeline that helps us to understand kind of where we are in God's timing. Uh, This is about where we are, that middle green line. This is the church age, okay? Uh, In the past, you had your basically your 8th century B.C., where the uh, kingdoms of Israel started to kind of come apart. They split into two kingdoms. Uh, then the north and the south. The north got taken over by the Assyrians and the south later on in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. So there's a lot of instability at the time that the, I, the prophet Isaiah is teaching. Uh, but the reason why I put this up is because, you know, I, listen, I've been studying this for years, so I kind of really know where he's going. You know, Isaiah will talk about his time, and then he'll speak about our time, then he'll speak about a future time. But for us, in, in linear time, Sometimes when we read the prophetic books, it can get a little bit confusing. So you have this situation where Isaiah is preaching. What he often does is he goes over our heads, because we're here, and he preaches to a future time when the Lord Jesus will come back again. He'll return, and he'll institute his millennial kingdom. Uh, Millennia, or millennial, meaning a thousand. It's a little tricky, too, because in our vernacular, in our culture, we speak about young people as millennials. So the millennial kingdom is not just for millennials, it's for all of us. Uh, but So you just kind of dif- have to differentiate the two. So uh, I'm going to talk about things that are happening today in our lifetime. But the title of the message is The Easy Way or The Hard Way. And, you know, it's an expression that we use. A lot of people use it. Parents sometimes use it with their kids. Hey, can we do this the easy way or the hard way? Um, you know, so your doctor may use it and say, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Uh, Years ago, when I was a police officer, I remember a situation where I had to bring somebody in who had a warrant. I sent to a call, and it was suspicious activity. And he, I told him, and he took an aggressive posture with me. And I said, listen, brother, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. It's your choice, but you're coming with me. Uh, Thankfully, the Lord brought to my recollection that two years before that incident, my partner and I saved his girlfriend. We saved her life. So I brought it up to him, and I said, listen, you've got to take the good with the bad. Thankfully for both of us that day, he took the easy way, and we were both in, in, okay and probably thanking God after the situation was over. But this also happens with the Lord. You know, we can do things the easy way, or we can do it the hard way. You're going to see as we go through the text, the Israelites did a lot of things the hard way, and they, they suffered for it. You know, they brought on the consequences of their sin uh, to themselves for it. And we can do the same thing. We can resist God. We can rebel against him. We could go our own way. And I can tell you, for many years, up until my mid-20s, I was doing things the hard way. Not just the hard way, but the hard-headed way. I still remember. It's like another life that I lived. Uh, But listen, the easy way doesn't mean we don't have problems, but it means that when we go through the trenches and we go through the tragedies and trials of life, we have the Lord with us. I mean, what better, uh, you know, mode to, to be in than to walk through your difficulties with the Lord right next to you? Um, again, it's better to be on his side than to be against him and to be adversarial. 
So we're going to look at this in six and seven parts, excuse me. Jumping into verse 1, it says, In that day... Now, that's key because this is said like half a dozen times in these two chapters. Uh, Again, Isaiah is signaling we're in the millennial kingdom. So with that timeline, when he says in that day, he's jumping over us. Again, it's for us, it's like we're, we're, we're here in 2018 and we're watching the salvo. We're watching Isaiah speak about the past, his time. Then he, he says in that day, he signals us that now we're going into the future. And then he'll speak about his time again. It's just something that we have to get used to in prophetic speak. It just it takes a little time. So in that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. Different subject. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom in blood, and bud, excuse me, and fill the face of the world with fruit. So one out of seven is that Israel is going to blossom in this millennial kingdom. Now, again, let's just cover the Leviathan thing or the sea serpent because what? Where does that come from? You know? Well, if you look at Job 41, he speaks about these two great creatures. As a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody about, they were asking me, what about the dinosaurs? And we, I was kind of talking about Job and how he identified these great creatures. Remember, dinosaur is something that we came up with. It's a composite word. But there were other words used in the Bible for these massive creatures. Uh, So there was these great sea creatures and great land creatures. Uh, In Genesis 3, well, we know that the serpent uh, was used as a vehicle for Satan to deceive Eve and then bring Adam and Eve into sin and rebellion against God. But there is an indication because God curses the creature that's used as a vehicle to go on his belly the rest of the days of his life. So it's possibility, the conjecture, that that creature may have had limbs at one point. You know, a lot of folklore, a lot of um, actually Asian culture and different cultures have these um, ideas of old stories of, of dragons or serpents. It's very interesting. Um, Revelation 12, 13, and 20. Uh, Revelation speaks about the dragon, but this is more of a metaphor for Satan and satanic activity. So we see that this, this serpent idea uh, has many parts to it. And the 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 idea or the bottom line is that in this millennial kingdom that Satan will completely be defeated once and for all. Uh, we know that in that thousand-year reign, uh, he will be put in a, in a, he'll really have a short leash, so to speak, and be put into an abyss. He'll come out one last time to lead cultures in rebellion, and then God will take care of him forever and you know, send him into the lake of fire. So it's a, it's a good thing. It's a, a future. You know, God's future is always the most optimistic future. In verses 2 through 6, he uses agricultural metaphors for the land of Israel. Well, if we go back to Isaiah 5, which we, which we covered, um, this was the parable of the vineyard of Israel. Uh, unfortunately, Israel, back in these days, you know, in Isaiah's time, bore bad spiritual fruit. They kept going into rebellion against God, and they suffered for it. 
Jesus explains this as well in Matthew 21. He picks this up, this theme of Isaiah 5, and he speaks about even in his time when the nation was in disarray, when they were in rebellion against God. But in the millennial kingdom, this vineyard is now all of a sudden going to bear some beautiful fruit. And God goes into detail about this beautiful fruit that she is going to bear. And you know what? You can make a personal application to this. You know, sometimes people, like they're considering coming up to receive Jesus, and they, they look at their life, and they think, I made a mess of my life. And this happens all throughout the Scripture. But don't let Satan lie to you. You know, God wants you to come to the foot of the cross. He wants you to turn your life around. He wants you to bear good fruit. And now God is saying that my, my Israel is going to bear this fruit, and I'm going to protect her. That's the beautiful thing, the forgiveness of God. Once you've experienced it, it's, 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 pretty, it's freeing. It's amazing. Okay, Verse 6, that Israel will fill the face of the earth with fruit. Now, there's a near and far fulfillment there. Uh, in 1948, when Israel was allowed to go back, when the Jews ba- went back into Israel and she became a nation again, we're seeing some amazing things about a largely desert area. If you look at your secular sources, Israel, more than half of Israel's land is desert. 50% desert. We can't fathom that in the United States. I'll continue. Only 20% of her whole land mass is arable land, fit for agriculture. But Israel today is a major exporter of flowers, produce, and agricultural technology. That's impressive. Now again, this was written uh, some almost 3,000 years ago, uh, and we're already starting to see the fruit of it today, but in the millennial kingdom, it'll be like God is just going to change the topography and make it beautiful and make it fruitful. Right? He speaks about the thorns, and, and we, we have thorns in our lives and trials in our lives. But again, God can take you, if you're considering, you're a seeker this morning, He can take you and He can change your life. Trust me, the year, a few years after I became a Christian, I still had baggage, unfortunately, that was tied to me in so many ways. But God, over time, again, He makes the, the dry ground bear fruit. So I want to encourage you with that. Continuing on, 7. It says, he has, has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob, which is also a name for Israel, will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, when wooden images and incense altars do not stand up. So two out of seven is that God forgives the national sins of Israel. And we see this with other nations too. You know, we've been covering the millennial kingdom and you know, he's talked about Egypt, he talked about Assyria. It's just amazing what a loving and forgiving God that we have. As a matter of fact, in Romans eleven, twenty five through thirty six the Apostle Paul speaks about Israel's temporary re- rejection of the Messiah nationally. Now, there's Jewish people in this very church here who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So many Jewish people in Israel now accept Christ as their Savior, but nationally they're still, they're still antagonistic to that thought. But there's going to be a future restoration, right? Uh, after, after discipline a lot of times repentance is produced, change. 
you know, I, I do want to turn to the Lord. Why am I fighting against him so long? But we see that Israel was chastened for her idolatry, and the metaphor of her chastening or their discipline was the rough east wind. If you look at a map, everything to Israel's east were the vehicles, those nations, those, those empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were, God raised them up, and they traveled westward to Israel, and they chastened her, they disciplined her uh, in her wickedness. He removed his protective hand, so to speak. So again, a lot, a lot of the prophetic works are in metaphors. It does take some time to get used to. Okay? But also, God tells us that when those nations became prideful and they became cruel, he chastened them as well. You know, God is an equal opportunity disciplinarian. You know, he, he loves us all the same. And, and we're going to talk about that towards the end of chapter 28. But, you know, these idols of wood and stone, God had to destroy a lot of their sites, this pagan worship, because he couldn't coexist with these sinful pagan religions. Right? And again, more personal applications here. Once we repent, once we, you know, turn to the Lord and, and we start moving away from our self-directed life, there's a lot of things. That, first of all, there's acceptance. Doesn't everybody want acceptance? You know, you look at especially, and I remember high school and college, especially when you're young, you know, you're looking for an identity. You're looking for a group of people to accept you in, in addition to your family and to call you, you know, one of their own. But when we come to the Lord, when we repent and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says that he adopts us into his family. So we're in the family of God. That's the best family to be in, especially with God as the parent. Good stuff. And then we get to enjoy never to be forsaken because of God's love, His grace, and His sacrifice for us. Continuing on, verse 10. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed and there will lie down and consume its branches. When its bows are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day, again, that phrase, that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river, or the Euphrates, to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day that the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. And they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So three out of seven is a contrast of hearts. Again, the hard way or the easy way? The hard way is rebellion against God. The easy way or better way, the only way, is when God draws us to respond to that. And I can tell you that not only did I experience it, but I've talked to many people who have come forward to receive Jesus. They've experienced it too. And I'll, you know, the, altar, the worship team will be doing worship, and I'll give an opportunity for people to come forward, and they'll tell me afterwards, I just wrestled inside, I wrestled inside. Well, God's calling you, but he's also not going to trample your free will. So rebellion against God or being drawn to God and coming to him. In essence, God is saying, he keeps pointing to this millennial kingdom, but in essence, he's saying, but until, until then, right now, 8th century B.C., I have to deal with this rebellion issue. I have no choice. Okay? Verses 10 through 11. Um, back then, your walled or fortified city was your protection. 
Amazingly enough, it was also considered your identity. We're in Jerusalem, there's walls up, there's no bombers. The only way people can get in is to try to siege, put a siege, siege ramp against us and try to break, but we have a very strong wall. And there was this mentality. Listen, I'm, I'm from Jerusalem. We got a really strong wall, and it became kind of like an identity. And sometimes when cities were so pro- prosperous, the idea of city-states before countries and nationalism and borders, um, the Greeks were big into city-states. You identified by your city-states. We're Spartans. We're Athenians. You see what I'm saying? So in this situation, some of these cities were so prideful that it, was, it represented the pride of man's arrogance and self-rule. And even to thumb their nose at God and saying, we're secure. We're fine. We don't need your help. But, the, but, the, but that caused a lot of problems, uh, especially when somebody did get through. Now what are you relying on if you're not relying on God? So what happens here is in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come and they do break through the walls, and they're not very nice to the inhabitants. So uh, all that pride, all that arrogance, all that humanism, without God was now you're taken away in servitude. And there you have it. Verse 12 and 13, it appears to be a culling and a calling of the scattered and repentant Israelites just after the Lord's second coming, obviously which hasn't happened yet. So from the far reaches, we speak about Assyria, there really is no Assyria anymore, but we're talking about the Euphrates, maybe over towards the Tigris a little bit. We're talking about the area of Iraq, uh, maybe where the Kurds are, uh, the borders of Persia or Iran. So it's, the geography is very interesting. So what you see is this um, culling from that area all the way west towards North Africa, pulling all those people in to come back to Jerusalem. So not only were were the Jews, again, this is a future occurrence, Jesus comes back nationally now, finally, the nation sees, well, this, this was our Messiah the whole time. He starts to cull the Jewish people back into Jerusalem, and you also see these nations like Egypt and Assyria honoring the Lord. It's going to be a really cool time. Um, you know, people ask me about it, and I can give them some details from the Scripture, but I still have no idea how amazing it's going to look. So it's uh, looking forward to it. <laughs> but also the blowing of the trumpet is significant. And this is Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, the blowing of the trumpet was a call to battle. The troops would, you know, that was your way. They didn't have pagers or, um, you know, intercom systems, they you blew the trumpet, troops get ready, it's a call to battle. Uh, also, it was a call to spiritual assembly, to assemble before the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, again, a future occurrence, the Lord Jesus will blow the trumpet and call us uh, into his kingdom. Uh, very exciting. So you can see these themes that repeat themselves over time. Chapter 28. Woe to Ephraim. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, or the valleys of fatness, of lushness. To those who are overcome with wine, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown 
of glory and a diadem. Again, we, we're switching times here in that day. That's, that's the signal. To the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. That was significant. We'll get to that. So four out of seven is woe to sinful Ephraim. What are we, what are we talking about here? Well, in this 8th century BC, Ephraim was the dominant tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, which was becoming very overrun with idolatry, with paganry, with just horrific practices of their pagan neighbors. And they had this deadly trifecta, so to speak, of pride, drunkenness, you know, drunkenness, substance abuse, and an air of superiority, which especially made the leaders feel that they were untouchable. And it's, it's an interesting thing when we do wrong, if we don't get struck by the lightning bolt right away, we mistake God's mercy and his long-suffering for he doesn't care. Because, you know, we, we quote this a lot from Casting Crowns, it's a slow fade. You know, when you fall into a sinful lifestyle, it's a slow descent and progression. And eventually, sometimes the, its own consequences of sin will catch up with us. But, you know, imagine if God struck us with lightning every time we did something wrong. There'd be nobody left on the earth. So he is merciful, and he does give us time to come to him. But these guys, and they should have known better, because I'm going to talk about the religious leaders, um, they should have known better. They knew what his word said. He condemned their behavior, and they thought that they would escape his punishment, but that was not true. And, you know, you look at kind of these city themes, these city-states back then, uh, somebody said, a government official said about Washington, D.C., and I've talked about how decadent that city is, that he says, we, somebody said, we have three political parties. We have the Democrat Party, we have the Republican Party, and we have the Cocktail Party. <laughs> you know, it's a city of excess, and I've covered this extensively. And I suspect that probably at the Cocktail Party is where more of these talk about laws and things that these legislators do to benefit themselves and kind of keep us out of the loop. Oh, yeah, we passed this, this bill, and uh, you look in, and you're like, what? Who came up with this stuff? But this is what's going on. It's a decadent city. Unfortunately, Washington, D.C. pretty much controls this country. Um, come, Lord Jesus, come. But the fading flower metaphor is repeated here. Uh, eventually, the glory and the beauty of Israel was destroyed because of her rebellion and sinful behavior. As a matter of fact, they have uh, excavations of Samaria. And uh, King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings, he redecorated the palaces. I mean, there's still, you can go online and look at the ruins, and it's pretty. You can see, like, the gardens and the elevations and just the natural architecture. Uh, Ahab had an ivory palace. He took all this ivory and had carvings and made it beautiful. And the people were so into their, their own lives, so into their own, you know, little worlds that they didn't consider God. And what God was saying is all that beauty, all that glory of what man has made, well, when an invading army comes in, they're going to loot, they're going to steal, they're going to destroy, and, you know, it's, it's not going to be a pretty thing to look at. And in verse 4, it says the early fig is eaten up quickly, which is probably because you had your early figs and your late figs, especially, I have a fig tree. And I only get one fig because the weather here is not conducive to have two types of figs. I've got to tell you, when the, I, I waited all the way until the end of August to eat those figs. They're purple, they're ripe, it's natural sugar. Man, it's delicious. 
But I digress. <laughs> so what he's saying is the early figs that, you know, again, a metaphor. Somebody come and eat them, gobbling up quickly before the whole crop can be produced. And this was a picture of the invading, invading Assyrians in 724 to 721 B.C. in the city of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern tribe of, of Israel or the northern kingdom. Uh, by contrast... He speaks about his faithful few, right? The remnant, that's another key word. A lot of key words in the scripture, especially the prophetic books. You see a word, you, you pay attention. Okay, this, this means something here. It's, it's big. Jesus did the same thing in the New Testament. He said, he who has ears, let him hear. Because we can hear, we can, you know, you can hear things in your sleep and you wake up and it doesn't really affect you. So our ears are always open. They're always listening. But are we actually absorbing it? Are we, are we thinking about it? Are we processing it? So the remnant were the faithful few that didn't get caught up in their, their homes and, and their city and their nationality and all these self-identifiers. They looked as, at God and his beauty, and they were always focused. And even in our culture, there's, there's decadence in the Christian culture. I've talked about it. Um, but are we those faithful few? Are we the remnant? Right? That's a very powerful word there because God always had his remnant of believers. That they, they just kept looking to him. Yes, I have this stuff. Yes, I live in the world. Yes, you know, I do this and I drive here and I have these degrees. But you know what? God is my focus. Right? God is the focus. And he likens himself in true beauty, true glory as a diadem, as a, a jeweled crown. But again, this, in, in the millennial kingdom, this is going to be more prevalent. You know, every, everybody in the world is going to get it. Oh, okay, here he is. This is what he's doing. He stopped the wars. He stopped the aggression. Um, there's peace. And, and even the, the worldly people that have come through this, um, this uh, seven-year difficult period uh, before the Lord's return, they're, they're going to they're figure it out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be obvious because he's going to be ruling in Jerusalem. Uh, again, that's going to be interesting too. I'll probably make a lot of trips there. Uh, if, if there's still churches, I don't know, but it's just, it's like the, we'll get the presidential tour from Jesus Christ. That'd be pretty neat. Uh, last part of verse uh, six here, the last part verse that I read was, uh, probably has to do with this miraculous delivery of Jerusalem from Assyrians' attack on Jerusalem ga- Jerusalem's gates. So in verse six, he speaks about the strength to those who turned back the battle at the gate. And God did a miraculous thing that this army that was just terrorizing everyone in every walled city, um, he destroyed a good part of their army, the Lord, you know, in one, one night. And uh, they eventually turned tail and they, they went back to where they came from because they probably realized it was the hand of God and they didn't have a whole lot of troops left to take on Jerusalem. But there's a, a key uh, like a bright line here when we get into verse 7 because it says, but they also. So let's check that out. It says, but they also. So the battle is stopped at Jerusalem. However, now Isaiah is turning his attention from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, which enhoused or encased Jerusalem, which was the spiritual seat of the Jewish people. So he says, but they also have erred through wine. And through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that no place is clean. 
Whom will he teach knowledge and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from the milk? Those just drawn from the breast? Question mark. So five out of seven is the sins of Ephraim of the northern kingdom were spreading to the southern kingdom. I've said this many a times. Influence is always dynamic. Influence is never static. So when we're around other people, if we are believers, we're either hopefully positively influencing them with our light, or what could be happening is they could be negatively influencing us with their spiritual darkness. So you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, you see it in your lives today. And sometimes, and it's happened to me and it's very painful, God will wrench you away from associates that are having a negative influence on you because he wants to do something with you. You see a lot of wilderness experiences, whether it be the Apostle Paul or other uh, people of God who God kind of sent them away to be alone for a while just with him and them. And then he brought them back. And even John the Baptist, he was in the wilderness. He brings John back into society and John was not going to be corrupted. He was not going to be manipulated. And they hated him for that. But he was going to speak the truth. So influence is an interesting thing. And we see influence here. Unfortunately, the southern kingdom, which had the seed of spirituality, was being negatively influenced. So it wasn't just the north. It was bleeding over. It was spilling over. It was the priest and the prophet were also drunk. They erred in judgment. And isn't it more disgraceful, even if you see it in the news, I mean, there's crime, crime, oh my goodness. It doesn't matter, cable, TV, or internet, or the paper. There's always crimes. But I think that we all, and I do, take notice when we see that it's somebody in clergy. Right? It's somebody who's a leader. Especially a, a, a pedophilia scandal or something like that. It's, it's loathsome. And I, you know, I say to myself, how did that, how did, so you're around the Bible and you're around the things of God and, and was there, you know, was there intoxication involved? Was it, was it demonic? I mean, how does something like this happen? So God is really upset because those that were supposed to be uh, influencing his people for good, right, they were also caught up in this. Verse 8, the tables of the priests and the prophets were full of vomit and filthiness. That's disgusting. You know? And it's, it's amazing that when you, well, back in the day, a long time ago, I was around that a lot. And I'm going to tell you something. Out of all the things that the body can emit, vomit is nasty. I don't want to go into too much detail if you've just eaten, but even depending, depending on what you have in your stomach at the time, it's, it's, it's gross. And, and God's, <laughs> all right, you're making faces, so I'll dial it back a little bit. But, but basically, um, God's word is not politically correct. You know, and it, it gives these images to really get us to think. What is loathsome to God? I mean, in our culture, everybody's triggered by everything. Could you imagine Isaiah saying to the Lord, that might be a little bit too harsh. You know, these people get triggered a lot when they're going to read it in 2018. But God's not, he's not concerned. It's not a popularity contest. He needs to get it out there. We need to be triggered sometimes and be pulled out of our complacency. And this is the way he does it. So I would say that um, this is metaphoric, but it's also literal. You know, just this drunkenness, this drunkenness and intoxicating out of their minds. I mean, the social costs in our country just from alcohol abuse is astronomical. It's in the hundreds of billions, you know. 
So it, it's, it's a bad thing. You know, the Bible doesn't say you can't have a... And this is... People debate this all the time. I, I wouldn't judge anybody. Oh, you have a glass of wine with dinner. Whatever. The Bible it talks about being drunk. There's a big difference where your brain, part of your brain starts to be shut off you're, and you're inhibited and you wake up the next morning and somebody has to tell you what you did the night before. That's the problem with intoxication. You see what I'm saying? So if somebody has a glass of wine with dinner, God bless you. If you can't tell the difference between a glass and two bottles, then you probably have a problem and shouldn't drink. So, I mean, there's a lot of common sense in the scripture, isn't there? You know, we're not going to get legalistic here. But often in prophecy, you also get the rebuttal, check this, by those who are being rebuked. So this, it's like a, it's a, you know, it's neat. It's like a puzzle that you kind of put together. So what's happening here is the establishment clergy, they're irritated by uh, Isaiah's words, right? The tradition has it that uh, Isaiah was killed by his own people, right? This, and this was not uncommon. So was John the Baptist. So was Jesus. Um, do we like to hear negative things about ourselves? No, but sometimes we have to. Uh, but the establishment clergy uh, basically were saying, so, you know, who, who will he teach knowledge? And who will he make to understand the message? Because we do it. Yeah, we got our faults, but listen, this is our position. We're going to be fine. Those who just weaned from milk, those who just were drawn from the breast. In other words, what are you going to get, little babies to do our job? I'll get back to that. There's some movements today uh, that they overfocus on seminary. And they kind of have, it becomes like a pompous attitude. Well, we're schooled, we're well learned. This is our position. These are the vestments that we wear. This is how you address me. This is my title. And where something where God might have started off for good, teaching, ministering, people get puffed up. So the clergy are kind of resisting Isaiah's words. We don't like what you have to say. I don't care if it's from God. Imagine that. You know, I look at my life, and anyone who goes through this pulpit, any of us who come up here and teach, we're expendable. If God, if we're not doing the right thing, he can remove us, put somebody else in our place. And I think that's a good attitude to have. We're all expendable. But he, but he wants to use us all. You see what I'm saying? A lot to this. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said this. I love this quote. He said, People are so intoxicated with an intellectual pride that they laugh at the simplicity of the message of the gospel presented by humble witnesses. End quote. True statement. Verse 10. Continuing on. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. I was always taught when, when God repeats something in his word, it's something to pay attention to. There's something very deep in here. So six out of seven is a new way to learn about God. And this line upon line, precept upon precept, Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, and many Calvary chapels use this method. That's why I'm here, and I'm not just going one Sunday, well, let's talk about love today. Well, let's talk about forgiveness. Well, let's talk about, you know, 20 years go by, and I only covered you, I only went through 5% of the Bible with you. 
Calvary Chapel, we believe that every word is important. Now, everything may not be directly applicable to us because a lot of it's historical, but we will cover the entire Bible. We don't just cover our favorite parts. That's easy. That's easy. So getting into some of this stuff can be very difficult. But Calvary Chapel had this explosion decades ago in California, mostly in Orange County, where many were leaving the dead seminarians and flooding into this new work where it was line upon line, precept upon precept. That's how important God's Word is. And I think, too, we make the assumption, because I hear it, we make the assumption that um, young people, we just, we just need to entertain them. We just need to wow them. You know, I was really blessed. We had our young adults meeting on Thursday, and I talked to two of our young adults, and uh, they were kind of, it was great because they were filling me in on their journey as Christians, going to different ministries, and they had gone to the ministries that were all hype. You know, it's the 40-minute the rock concert. And then they said, but gee, when we got to get to the Word, there was uh, maybe 15 minutes of something that really was worldly. It had nothing to do with God's Word. And what is worship supposed to do? It's supposed to bring us into an idea, mindset, so that we can receive God's Word. It's like getting all excited for something, and then it's a dud. You know what I'm saying? So uh, that's a really neat thing to look at, and I love to hear different people's uh, journeys, what they've been through, what they've seen, and especially when they come back to, you know what, I want to hear the Word. So I think I said, so, you, so you're okay with putting up with my 40 to 45 minutes of of, you know, teaching to the pulpit, like, yeah, it's good stuff, you know, we're, this is what we want, we want to absorb that, um, it's very refreshing, when I was a, a new believer, and I was a young adult, and I came to the Lord, it was the same thing, it was something very new to me, it was something that I wasn't used to, it took some time to sit there, and pay attention to the whole thing, but it just grew on me, it was the word, and I was able to apply it to my life, so, uh, pretty neat. You know, John, or Jesus in John 14 divides the world into two camps. He says that there's two types of people in the world. Those that love me and those that do not love me. So, so we're in a church today and we might think, well, gee, I want to be in the camp and I believe I'm in the camp that I love Jesus. But you know what the criteria for those that are in the camp that love him, you can read this on your own in John 14, is that, that we know the word and that we obey the word. So if that's you, you love Jesus. If, and I would say, I just, when I witness to people, especially in denominations and they don't know the word, I would say, well, how do you know which camp you're in if you don't even know what Jesus' teachings are? And if you don't even know what his teachings are, how do you know if you're even following it with your life? Well, yeah, it's a good question. You know, so we know him, we love him, because we love his word. And we want to obey it. Or we just want to have our ears tickled. Or we just want to get excited. Or we just want to go to some hype place. There's a difference. 11 through 13, the wicked leaders refused. Again, God's saying, line upon line, precept upon precept. He keeps bringing this up. And then he intersperses the troubles that the leaders were going to have because they lost that simplicity. And in their arrogance, they ended up being judged. Okay? Uh, what he was saying is, <laughs> you don't want to listen to it simply in your own language. He basically says that someone's going to come with a foreign language that of the Assyrians, you're going to hear that language, and that's the language that's going to order you to get up, get out of your house, and be taken captive. So this is what's going to happen. God had to remove his protective hand. You know, they could have done it the easy way, which was repentance, but they chose to do it the hard way. And many did repent being in captivity, 
But they had lost everything at that point. And again, God restored a lot, but why go through that? You know, why go through that? Verse 14, last few verses. He says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, key for the Messiah, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, which is the first stone, by the way, I used to build foundations, that cornerstone, that's where everything starts. A sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the water will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overflowing scourge passes through. Then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over and by day and by night. It will be a terror to understand the report. It will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short for a man to stretch out and the covering so narrow that he cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do this work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Um, actually, in other translations, it says strange act. I'm going to come back to that. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. Why are you guys still resisting God? Your bonds are going to be made strong. It's going to carry you away. You know, it's this, this dialogue here. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts, a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice, listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? Plant the wheat in rows and barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in righteous judgment, his God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever. Break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. All these spices and bread, I'm getting hungry. I'm ready to eat now. <laughs> so... So the last part, 7 out of 7, is the contrast between a false foundation and a true foundation. And again, this, you, metaphorically, the, the, especially the elites, had this idea that we're untouchable. You know, we see that in government, don't we? Man, our, our country is getting so far away from what the original founders had kind of set up. You know, when a person is in politics too long, they just become arrogant. They don't seem to represent the people anymore. I don't care which side they're, of the aisle they're on. It's a sad thing to watch. But these guys were in this position so long, and with some of the priests, it, their fathers and grandfathers, it was generational. And they just had this arrogance that even a prophet of God who was face-to-face with them, and they weren't cowards, they blew them off. And that's, a, that's a rough place to be. 
So in essence, they made a, a deal with death or Sheol, the grave, that because of our abilities, our status, um, God needs us. Their craftiness, you know, nothing's going to happen to us. And it's sad. Verse 16 through 19. Right in the middle of all this, he tells us about the coming Messiah, Isaiah. And boy, when we get into Isaiah 53 and these other scriptures, I'm probably going to take a few sermons on just one chapter. We're going to slow down and we're going to, you know, we're going to blow it up and look into each of these phrases. How amazingly, thousands of years ago, he predicted with such accuracy Jesus Christ, even what he would look like. That's impressive. Even the form of... We'll get into that. <laughs> so, the coming Messiah. Metaphors. Stone, cornerstone, foundation. Jesus Christ. This translates into strength, stability, security. The measuring line and the plummet were measuring tools. And we have, we have fancy tools now. I like them. You know, we have the laser levels. And boy, it's a lot of fun. So much different than the string and the, the plummet and all the things we used to use when we would build stuff. Uh, but Jesus is... You know, you would have to build that cornerstone perfect, or by the time you started going, if it was a big foundation, it would start to walk on you. It would get wobbly. So that cornerstone had to be perfect. But Jesus is the foundation for everything, secular and spiritual. By everything we do as believers, we have to measure that by Jesus Christ. That's how powerful he is. Um, now, in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come yet, but Jewish people had faith that God was going to bring the Messiah. So even that, that faith in Abraham, the Bible says, Abraham had faith, and the Bible says it was imputed to him, credited of righteousness. So because he knew and he believed what God was going to do. And verse 19, it will be a terror just to understand the report. You know, can you, can, can you just imagine that situation where all of a sudden they're, they're scoffing at God, they're scoffing at the prophets, and, um, you know, the Babylonians break down the walls and they start taking these guys away captive, thousands of miles away from their homeland. Um, but they, it didn't have to happen like that. They could have taken the easy way. Verses 20 through 22, he speaks about the bed that they made for themselves being too short. There's nothing worse than if you're lying in bed and, I don't know, it's too short and your feet are kind of sticking out. So, I mean, we use expressions today, you made your bed lie in it probably comes from here. They made a short bed, so to speak, with their life, and their feet are sticking out. You know, they can't get comfortable. The, the covers that they have are so narrow that they can't... You ever wrap yourself in a nice comforter in the winter day? I mean, the worst thing is when you, your spouse steals your part of it and you're, you're left out in the cold. But, you know, so they had a short bed and they had covers that didn't... That's a miserable night's sleep. Uh, so, hey, you guys made your bed. You lie in it. Building your life and leaving God out of the equation. You know, where's Stephen Hawking's now, the great physicist? Whether he's, I hope he repented. I, re, I don't scoff at, at the unbelieving dead. I, do, I refuse to do that. But whether he is in a good place or not in a good place, all his theories of physics and the universe, and I've followed some of his stuff, very interesting. There's been some competing theories. Leaving God out of the equation, now he's at a place where he, he gets it. You can almost see God saying, remember that theory? Well, this is how it works. You forgot about me. At least Einstein had a constant to believe that God was part of the equation. 
A lot of these guys now, they just want to completely discount God, and it affects negatively their work. You ever see competing physicists argue with each other? It's not pretty. Are you in a precarious or untenable position because God is not a part of your life? They were. Verse 21, he refers to some battles at Perizim and Gibeon, and that was interesting because God allowed the children of Israel to win. They were victorious. However, he was going to do a strange work, an unusual act, that now when the battles came to his people, they would lose. God kind of switched sides. And that was for their chastening. That was for their discipline. Not popular preaching, but listen, you've got to take the good with the bad. I said that in my opening. Um, when I go through something difficult in my life, and I'll just share with you, um, and it's, it's something that's going on, maybe weeks, maybe months, ask my wife. I'll go down the street. It's kind of rural where we are. And I'll just pray. And I'll say, Lord, am I doing something that's irritating you? Um, I want to be next to you. I don't want to be on the other side of the... That's the last place that I want to be. But it's a good thing for us to pray that. Lord, am I, am I doing something that's against your will? You know, I can't seem to find victory in this situation. You know, I'm open to suggestions. That's a good place to be so that you don't get to where these guys are. Completely deluded. Completely deluded. Hitler thought he was going to conquer the world. He ended up spending his last moments in a bunker underground. Um, and committing suicide. Completely delusional in his mind of what he thought and what reality was, right? Last few verses, 23 through 29, God switched gears. He switches gears and uses this parable of farming as a metaphor to explain what he does. Jesus did the same thing in the New Testament, constantly used God as the landowner or or Jesus was the seed sower, or he was always using these agrarian, agricultural examples. And I know we have at least one farmer in here. We probably have a few. But there's different methods that farmers use to get what? A growing, healthy crop. I never met a farmer that said, I don't care what happens this year. (laughs) I don't care if they're scraggly. I don't care if there's a drought. I don't care. I don't care. They always want to make sure they can maximize that crop. And and God wants to make sure that he maximizes our fruitfulness. So we're going all the way back to the beginning, right? Plowing. That analogy is an analogy of discipline. Breaking up that hard ground. And we can be hard-headed. Plowing, breaking up the ground, breaking up the ground. That's tough, even for the farmer. It's, it's a, even with your mechanical equipment. It's a, a rocky kind of rough thing going through your fields like that. Uh, planting and seeding, what's that? Nurturing the repentant. Putting things in rows and appointed areas. Ah, things we don't always understand. There is an order and a reason for everything that God does. And we may not completely understand that on this side of eternity. He speaks about how the grain was, was th- crushed and how the cumin was, was planted and all these kind of things in here. You're like, what, what are we talking about? What is cumin? You know? uh, but he's saying that I have a reason for everything I do. Some threshing is, is more gentle. Some threshing can be more hard. You know? it's, it's almost like your kid's going to run out into the street and you grab them by whatever you can grab their ear, their hair, their collar, and you yank them in, and you might hurt them. But at least they didn't get run over by that car. And sometimes the Lord's methods is to yank us from something that's going to destroy ourselves, our families, or our future. And we we, what are you doing, God? We don't get it. And the car just passed by. The kid didn't see it, but the parent did. 
So when we look at this, again, easy way or hard way, verse 23, he says, give ear and hear God's voice. Is that you this morning? Is that me? Are we paying attention? Are we hearing the message for ourselves personally and not for somebody else? Do we want to go through life and eternity the easy way? Or actually the only way? The narrow road? Or do we want to make our our lives and eternity the hard way? The choice is ours. Last verse again, it says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. God is always saying, I'm here. I tell my son that. Just, he's here. Just pray. Stop what you're doing. I'm here. God's saying, I have counsel. I have guidance. I have wisdom. I can make this situation easier. And sometimes we don't listen. No, no, I want to do it the difficult way. I want to bang my head against the wall ten more times, Lord, and then maybe I'll come to you. Well, maybe we'll knock something in the right hole and we'll go, oh, okay, now I'm ready to talk to the Lord. But, you know, I I had a, uh, a situation this week where I had a counsel, a boy, and his parent was with him, and I didn't know them at all. I was referred to them by somebody, and it was a tragic situation. And I'm like, Lord, I, I need help with this. I don't, first, I, I have to get to know them and the situation. And, but I just, I used the word, I explained it, and it was so cool because the boy was asking me more questions. And then his, his parents started asking me more questions. And it was so cool because as I'm studying this for today, I'm thinking, wow, the simplicity of God's word. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Boys started asking me questions about heaven, and it was so, so neat. And it wasn't because I'm anything special. It was because I used what God gave me. He said, I'm wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. I think sometimes, I wonder, and I've heard this, if when we get to heaven, there's a room, and I don't know if this is true, that God's going to show us with all these catalogs and videos and, and it's like, you didn't ask me this. This could have happened. You didn't ask me that. You didn't ask for my help. You did it your way. Look at all the things that could have happened. Look at all the blessings that you, the, the room of missed blessings. You know what I'm saying? It's, he's just right there. He was in the Old Testament and he's there today. So I just would encourage you, um, take the easy way, you know, and uh, come up today, take hold of the cornerstone of Christ, assuring you the way into heaven. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfield's by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.